football season's underway Well, you better get ready for a brand new day Hey, Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs are gonna win today They're singing Go Cubs, go! Go Cubs, go! Hey, Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs are gone. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Good Lord, another episode. How are you, everybody? Uh, My name is Tim Hanlon, of course, and this is Good Seats Still Available. Thank you for coming back and finding us. Uh, It's our curious little podcast journey. We do it each and every week, despite all the odds against it as our uh, our little investigation into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, I know what you're saying. Why the hell did we have to listen to a minute and a half of Steve Goodman singing Go Cubs Go when the Cubs are are still very much with us and, and you know, having won a championship a couple of years ago and competitive and, you know, Wrigley Field and, you know, Chicago loves them and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, you're right, but we're not going to be talking about the Cubs of today. We're actually going to go way back into... What, uh, frankly, not uh, your average Cub fan even knows, and that is what the Cubs used to be before 1903 when they became somewhat officially known as the Cubs for the first time. You may not know or may think you know, but really don't, uh, that this team actually got its start way back in the earliest days of the National League and a tad bit earlier. But uh, for all intents and purposes, the official professional history lineage began for the Cubs in in 1876 when they were known as, stand back, the Chicago White Stockings. Yeah, you'd think that you'd know that by now, but yeah, the Chicago White Stockings, no, not the current Chicago White Sox. That's a different story for a different episode. The Chicago White Stockings of the National League was the first team uh, in uh, the, uh, the progression that ultimately became the Chicago Cubs in 1903. And that is our our conversation, those uh, formative years when uh, the Cubs prior to 1903 were known as not only the White Stockings, but later the Chicago Colts for a good portion of the 1890s. And then the Chicago Orphans. And we'll get into the reasons why they were called that. And we'll also get into the origins as to how they get their name, mostly as a nickname to start, but then it's stuck uh, of the Cubs uh, into the years preceding and then into 1903. And we get into all of that fun stuff with our guest this week, Jack Bales. And Jack has written the uh, seminal book for any Cub fan. You consider yourself a Cub fan. You need this book to complete your uh, your understanding, your history, your knowledge, your postgraduate degree, if you will, 
And the book that Jack has literally just published, courtesy of our friends at uh, McFarland, uh, it's called Before They Were Cubs, the early years of Chicago's first professional baseball team. And as always, I learn a ton and I'm not necessarily the biggest Cub fan. Yeah, I know I live in Chicago. I married into it. So, you know, don't yell at me. But as my in-laws and uh, and their family, my wife's family have rubbed off on me. I've uh, I've learned and become quite the aficionado of the history and the legacy of this team. It, it predates the name of the Cubs. Uh, we get into all that stuff. And, and clearly, this is a, a franchise that uh, has many, many uh, interesting and, and good and successful things ahead of it as uh, Wrigley Field continues to get refurbished and the whole neighborhood gets uh, uh, revitalized around it. And uh, hell, even a new, uh, its own uh, sports, regional sports network starting next year. So the Cubs, right, very full of legacy. Uh, and we're going to get into the earliest parts of that legacy with our guest, Jack Bales, coming up in just a couple of moments. We want to, of course, as always, uh, thank one of our great sponsors. And this week, we spin the dial and it lands on, yes, 503 Sports. It's 503 Sports. We love 503 Sports. You find them at 503-sports.com. Don't forget that dash. What do you find there? Well, they fancy themselves as the king of throwbacks. And uh, we love them especially not because they've got just great, you know, T-shirts and logos uh, featuring a whole bunch of uh, teams and leagues and sports that uh, have come and gone, shall we say. Uh, But they also do uh, amazing handcrafted uh, replicas of some of the original uniforms of those teams of yore, which are uh, certified for their uh, authenticity from the from the makers uh, at 503 Sports. And it, it is probably the best uh, and maybe ultimate way to uh, show your love and your fandom for uh, a team or, or, or a league that broke your heart by coming and going, shall we say. Uh, very much found uh, in the realm of football. So if you want a a USFL jersey, a WFL jersey, an XFL, the original version of, from 2001 jersey. How about the, the World League of American Football? Yeah, even the UFL from 2009 to 2012. Uh, you, uh, geez, was it Omaha Nighthawks fans out there? Uh, you know, there's a whole array of stuff uh, from that realm of football at 503-sports.com. I'm, I'm scrolling here. I'll make sure I got the, the team name. Yes, the Omaha Nighthawks. Uh, there's, oh, there's even a, a replica helmet there, too, if you want that. But uh, interestingly, and just recently, I just found out uh, from our friend Dustin Alameda, uh, who is uh, the uh, the chief cook and bottle washer at 503 Sports, uh, they just launched a replica jersey section for the ABA. Some great stuff. Yeah, they got T-shirts and all the great logos and stuff. But uh, if you're looking for an Anaheim Amigos jersey, how about an Oakland Oaks jersey to celebrate our uh, our great conversation with Pat Boone that we had about a year and a half ago? Search that episode up uh, and wear that while you're listening. Why don't you? How about the New Jersey Americans, the predecessor to the New Jersey Nets, or maybe even the Washington Caps? Yes, the Caps of Washington, which had a checkered history. Miami Floridians. I mean, they're all there, not only in T-shirts, but in jersey form at 503 Sports. Again, you're going to find them at 503-sports.com. Oh, and by the way. We wouldn't leave you hanging. We got a promo code for you. My God, we've got a promo code for you, and it's uh, for 10% off all of your purchases. That's the promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS. That's the promo code at 503-sports.com, the king of throwbacks they are. 503 Sports, give them a try. Yes, yeah, they say, you know, and I mean it this time. You'll be glad you did. All right, and you'll be glad you did 
Stick around for this conversation. Even if you're not a Cub fan, I think you're going to find this interesting because it really gets into some of the early rumblings of how some of the uh, the teams that have lasted for so long in Major League Baseball, like the Cubs, kind of got their sea legs. It's a great chat we had just a couple of weeks back with our new pal, Jack Bales. Here it is. This little show, for whatever reason, has kind of decided to focus on what used to be. Uh, and those are teams and leagues no longer uh, with us, either defunct or previously domiciled. And and certainly, you know, the, the, the story of, of the Cubs prior to them being the Cubs absolutely fits the genre. Now, it's a very historical. And we, we also recognize, too, that, you know, a lot of these stories uh, are, you know, some of them are more modern. Uh, but obviously, as the years p- pile on, they become sort of more uh, historical digs, if you will. Um, but, you know, with teams that still exist like the Cubs today, right, this is uh, absolutely part of the lore. And having uh, lived in the Chicago area now for almost 20 years and, and my wife and her family being Cubs fans, you know, the lore uh, certainly uh, goes very deep and is actually probably, uh, you know, unbeknownst to a whole generation of, uh, of Cub fans that uh, – Consider themselves as such, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm from Aurora, Illinois, myself, my hometown. And uh, uh, Chicago, you know, is the only uh, National League team from 1876 that is still playing in the city in which it was founded. So, yeah, there is an awful lot of lore there. Well, so uh, having grown up here then, and uh, it's pretty clear uh, from, you know, from outside purview that... uh, that you somehow fell hard for the Cubs, uh, perhaps growing up or when you lived here. Um, maybe you can give us a little uh, sense of uh, of how the Cubs sort of uh, hit your radar and when in your lifetime. And and then maybe why why a book uh, such as this on this early era of the team? Well, I grew I grew up in, again, in Aurora, Illinois. And uh, back on my desk right now is a picture of me and my twin brother and our younger brother, about, oh, eight, nine, ten years old, I guess, maybe even before that all wearing Cubs t-shirts and with our little bats and gloves and everything. So I didn't go to that many games growing up. We had uh, 11, no, excuse me, nine kids in our family, two adults make 11. And, uh, and there was always things going on. But I went to a few games here and there. And then, and then, and then uh, when my sisters were in high school, they would go to games and they, it was so easy to get to. You'd hop on the train and then go, go into the ballpark and, what was it, $3, $4 for a, uh, for a ticket? And my sister Jane was telling me just a while ago, you know, they'd go down and there was hardly anybody in the ballpark. So they, the players would all be there and they'd be signing balls and bats and things like that. So it was just a kind of a, a neat way to spend an afternoon uh, and, and everything. So that's, that's how I got involved. It wasn't, I followed them, you know, casually, but I was never really – a really a strong fan, but of all the baseball teams, that was my favorite. But I was I was not a rabid follower until really just in the last few years or so. Uh, uh, I'm a librarian by by occupation, but I'm a writer by avocation, and, I, and I've written quite a few articles and some essays and books, mostly of a literary nature. And after my last big project, I was thinking about well, branching off into something entirely new, something that was more a uh, lot different from my from my my previous works of literary research and biography. And as I said, I grew up outside of Chicago and I followed the Cubs here and there. 
And I thought, well, you know, the Cubs would be a neat topic. I'm interested in them. And so, of course, I'd have some sort of affection for them. It'd be fun to do. And I'd really be interested in it, which is always you know, what I, what I, what I want to write, what I want to write about. And also, uh, I always want to write about something that had never been done before. And of course I ha- I must own over 200 books on the Cubs, but I just wanted to find something, that, an angle that hadn't been done before. So, uh, and, th- and then I discovered the 19th century Cubs really hadn't been, been done much. There's maybe two, three books at the most that cover those. And, and, and none of them have real strong documentation. And I'm really big on, as you can see by looking at my book, I'm, I'm big on footnotes and, and citations. But anyway, in the summer of 2004, I was reading the Cubs magazine called Vineline. And, uh, and a fan wrote a letter to the editor in which he said he'd been having this heated argument with a, with a friend of his who said that who had the audacity to say that the, that the Cubs had not always played at Wrigley, Wrigley Field. And, and the fan said, well, you know, the Cubs have always been at Wrigley Field, the hallowed grounds of Wrigley Field, you know, the, uh, and going on and on about how wonderful Wrigley Field is. And he asked Beinlein to set the record straight and tell him, you know, that so I could tell my friend the Cubs have always been at Wrigley Field. And so Beinlein did and explain that the Cubs have, until 2016, the Cubs have never won a World Series at Wrigley Field, and that they played at a number of ballparks on the south side or the west side before settling down in 1916 at what was then Weeman Park, named after Charles Weeman, the owner, and which was renamed Cubs Park in 1919 and Wrigley Field in 1926. And that's what gave me the idea. Well, I had a little idea before, but that's what really included it. Hey, this is something I can maybe try to really make my mark on or make a mark on, you know, cover the 19th century Cubs, how they got started, what led to the formation of the Cubs, what went on. I knew they won some, some uh, championships back then, but really focus on an era that I think has been really neglected. You know, I love George Wool's book called a, what's called a nice little place on the North side. Well, you know, the Cubs had a nice little place on the, on the West side too, uh, and the South side, but you know, those are kind of, you know, footnotes in, in Cubs lore. And I really wanted to, to bring that out. This also sounds a little dangerous, right? Because if you're a librarian by vocation, right, this could be a very dangerous enterprise, right? Because you're, you could easily get, and, and I'm, and I love to get sort of some of the process of how you, once you decided you wanted to do this, that you could probably get caught up in the, uh, the numerous uh, uh, rabbit holes, right, of, of discovery and I want to say enjoy, but revel and or, you know, uh, uh, unearth, you know, a, a relatively unending Pandora's box of of discoveries and never get the writing part. Right. So how, how did the, how did you go about doing this? That's, that's exactly right, Tim. And, and there were times when I thought to myself, what in the heck have I done with my life here? You know, because uh I, I, at times I thought I bit off more than I could chew. And the, and the Cubs historian, we came, we've never met, but we've become good friends. And there's another researcher out of Minneapolis who's written quite a bit on the Cubs. They, the two of them really encouraged me to stay at it. They stay at it. Yeah, it, it's worth it. But, you know, there are, as I said, I have hundreds of books on the Cubs and I started reading them. And so, oh my God, I, this never ending. And, uh, so but I wanted to get a flavor, you know, because I was going into this cold. I didn't know that much about the Cubs. It was just the basics. And, of course, there are some people who think that the Cubs began in 1969, you know, with uh, with that uh, with that uh, World Series that wasn't. But uh, um, 
so then I, and I got a good idea of what was going on just by reading the secondary sources. And then I discovered some of the great websites out there, you know, Retro Sheet, Baseball Reference, and I joined Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and all their great resources. And they've got some things that are available online to Sabre, like the Sporting News newspaper and some other ones. And that was just really a godsend, having some of these online sources. I discovered uh, uh, a, a, a sporting newspaper, the, the, the New York Clipper, uh, put out by, uh, it's maintained in digital form by the University of Illinois. So that was a godsend, having these top-notch sporting publications available uh, online. And the optical character recognition was pretty good, too. So I, I started you know, getting some of the main websites and some of the historical material, which some of it's in my bibliography in the back of the book, like the Al Spalding's uh, history. They're just a marvelous source, and, and a lot of them have been reissued uh, uh, in, 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 in facsimile editions. And I got those on, on, on book collecting websites and on eBay. I got a real nice set of those, and some of them are even online, too. So uh, uh, Cap Anson's autobiography, Albert Spalding's autobiography. And so just, you know, I just started doing research and research and research. And finally, I remember I have a note to my twin brother saying, hey, it's July, I think it was July 31st, uh, 2004. I wrote the very first paragraph of chapter one. But there were times, Tim, you know, when I, when I, I guess I got going on this maybe 1997, 1998, and I didn't start writing until about 2004. And, uh, and even then there was more problems because uh, I've accessed as a librarian to a lot of databases, but, you know, some of the newspapers, some of these Chicago newspapers I wanted to use that I come across in my research just aren't available online. And so I would get reels upon reels of microfilm, like from the Chicago Evening Journal and the Chicago Inner Ocean and the Chicago Times and, and some of these other ones. I'd just camp out in our library, like on the weekends when we were closed on Sunday mornings and all through Christmas break. You know, I spent so many Christmas vacations just, you know, camped out over, over microfilm. And one of my colleagues came in on, when I wasn't there and I saw my my little, uh, my, 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 uh, cassette, uh, my, my CD player, my slippers and my robe and some snacks and bottles of water, all by the microphone readers. And she still recounts that story as a Jack's Jack is set up shop in the library over Christmas vacation. But, uh, uh, you know, my sweater, water bottle and everything. And, uh, of course their support and interest have really helped me keep me going. But yeah, it was just, and, and I kept getting sidetracked, as you said, by these great, great stories the, with the way the sports writers would write it back that time and their flowery language. Uh, Eugene Field, for example, is a sports writer for the old Chicago Daily News, the afternoon edition. So I had to get, that was very hard to get the Chicago Daily News, the afternoon edition through a microfilm because not too many libraries had it, but we had a wonderful interlibrary loan uh, uh, a librarian who really just went all out to make sure I got what, got what I needed. Uh, but he was well known for winking, blinking, and nod and little boy blue, but he was also a sports writer. And he wrote, he was really famous for some of this flowery language that he would write his, he'd write his columns with uh, and all. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. And the whole campus finally was new about it sometime uh, after a while. I get students stopping me on the campus walk saying, hey, you're the Cubs guy. When's your book going to get done? You know? So it just all took a life on its own. I just had a, had a, had a really good time doing that. I discovered some neat things that I, that I, that were never really known before. You know, for example, uh, I was going through this Chicago evening post 
uh, page by page. I don't think that was available online. And I just, you know, especially in, 18, I think it was in 1893 when the West Side Grounds was built. And I came across, I flipped over on the microphone, and there was this marvelous drawing of, of, uh, uh, of the old West Side Grounds. You know, and so I had a nice uh, laser copy made of that, and I have it in the book, and as well as their clubhouse and, and some other things. Um, I spent a whole weekend trying to discover why, when and why the club left the South Side Park. This is after the Players League for the West Side grounds. And, uh, uh, and I found out, and, I, and again, I really literally did spend a whole weekend and I, uh, uh, trying to figure this out. Cause I said, I have a chronology at the beginning of the book that kind of maps out their whole history from, uh, from, from about the Civil War time up to about well, 1902 when they became the Cubs. And, uh, I discovered that the president at that time, Jim Hart, who succeeded Albert Spalding, he leased the Southside Park to the promoters of a World's Fair College baseball tournament. And uh, so he moved all of the, uh, the team's games to the West Side grounds for the remainder of the season. And I remember the Cubs historian told me, God, Jack, that's a great find. I've always wanted to find that information, too. And I just kept on going to databases, going through microfilm. And again, after an entire weekend, I finally found it just made my day. Tim. That's one thing I really, really wanted to find. And, and I noticed sometimes researchers and this is true of all fields, I guess, they, be, they, they repeat the same story sometimes, and sometimes they aren't really true. Like, I can think of two or three books, Cubs Histories, that, be, that repeat, uh, uh, well, after the Cubs, after the, the Chicago team lost a real crucial game, about at least three sources say that the Chicago Tribune reprinted or printed an editorial that says, Chicago needs a representative club, an organization as great as their enterprise and wealth, one that will not allow the second-rate clubs of every village in the Northwest to carry away all the honors in baseball contests. And I didn't want to just cite it, cite it unseen, even though they gave the date, but I couldn't find it in the Tribune. And I got the Tribune on microfilm. I couldn't find it on the Tribune database. And so my twin brother and I were in Chicago. We went to the Chicago Public Library. We started checking newspapers. Couldn't find it there. And then I asked a friend, uh, who's written quite a few books on the Cubs. And he knew right away what newspaper it would probably be in, the Chicago Times. He, he went to the Chicago Public Library himself and photo, found the article on that day and copied it and sent it to me. So that was a real, real find, too. I spent hours and hours trying to verify that, by trying to verify that article. I didn't, I didn't want to have any secondary research that I didn't know about was actually true in the book. So almost, it almost seems like a search for a holy grail, so to speak, or maybe multiple ones. Let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, reel it back a little because the smart Alec uh, Cub fan out there, right, will probably say, "Oh, of course, you know they started as the Chicago White Stockings, which is obviously interesting to White Sox fans of the current generation, right?" But most people probably will say those smart Alecs will probably say, "Oh, yeah, it was back when the National League was." Uh, was begun in 1876, and they were a charter franchise. But before that, though, right, the Cubs story actually begins much earlier than that. And maybe you can give, give us a little bit of a synopsis of how it kind of gets going in the National Association, even before that, given the Cincinnati Reds and their, you know, pre-professionalizing, I guess, of, uh, of the sport altogether. Now, Chicago really liked its baseball, okay? Um there were like a handful of teams before the Civil War, but in 1866, I think after the Civil War, the city had about 30. 
city uh, 30, you know, semi-professional teams, strong amateur teams. Then the Civil War had been tough, and even people wanted some enjoyment. Even the Chicago Tribune had a big editorial about how, you know, let's go to the games, let's play baseball, let's have a good time. And uh, and they were really looking forward to the game that started it all. It took place on July 21st, 1868, between a real strong Chicago Excelsiors, which was one of the strongest teams in the Midwest, and the Cincinnati Buckeyes. And like 10,000 people had gathered to watch the Excelsiors play. And again, it was one of the best teams in the Midwest. In 1867, they had won 10 games and lost only one. But, and, that, and in that game, the Chicago Excelsiors lost to the Cincinnati Buckeyes, you know, 43 to 22. In fact, that's what inspired that quotation I read that what Chicago needs is a good club. And, uh, and so people were really embarrassed, and they were really embarrassed because at that time, Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Red Stockies, is one of the, was getting all the recognition around the country. You know, they were they were founded in 1866. They were the team around the country. Uh, and uh, in 1869, I think it won all 57 of its games. And anyway, they 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 wanted to get a piece of the recognition here, and so. Uh, uh, a, a group of businessmen met together in October 1869, and they were they met to form a professional club. and the And the word went out, you know, we we want to get a club going. And uh, they had advertisements in some of the uh, the leading sporting pu- publications. And they signed. Uh, in fact, my my hero, so to speak, is a guy named Jimmy Wood. You know, they talk about Ernie Banks being Mr. Cub. Well, and my my idea of Mr. Cub is Jimmy Wood, although I guess you'd say he was um, Mr. White Stocking. But he was the very first player signed. Uh, most players back then got about fifteen hundred dollars. He would he got about two two thousand dollars, and 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 that was that was how the team came about. And, they, and he himself went and a man named Tom Foley, who was one of the the father of American billiards, by the way. He went to various places out east recruiting teams and they eventually signed signed a good team and then uh april 29th 1870 they went to play one of their first games in st louis the st louis uniform uh, st louis unit unions and uh they had white stockings and supposedly and of course this is undoubtedly well i shouldn't say undoubtedly but it could be apocryphal but in one of the articles that i had uh, a boy exclaimed oh look at the white stockings and that name stuck, and that's how they became known as the White Stockings. And by the way, they won uh, that game uh, 47 to one. So, so that's how it all uh, that's how it all started. But that's all though before even anything quote unquote organized, right? This is really kind of really formative stuff, right? We're not even at the okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let me yeah let me get into that. Yeah, okay. The whole sport was changing at that time too. Okay, the uh, the administrative body. At that time, when the, in pre-60s, even was the now in the in their, yeah, pre-60s and in the mid-60s was called the National Association of Baseball Players. That had been organized in 1858, and it included a lot of amateur amateur teams and maybe about a dozen or so professional teams. You know, the amateurs played for fun; the professionals played for money. And these, of course, these salary teams were growing in popularity. They had the best players, so of course they could generate the highest interest and they could generate the large ticket sales. Unfortunately, though, there were a lot of problems, Tim, going on at this time. And that's what part of the fun and some of the, my research was. Some of the stories, in fact, even including the white stockings uh, involving the gambling going on at that time, the throwing of games uh, called hippodroming. Thank God for 
Paul Dixon's baseball dictionary because that, all these names I'd never heard about before. Hippodroming was the throwing of games. Uh, revolvers, the name revolvers throws, uh, refers to people who broke their contracts by jumping from one team to another, the one that offered the most money they would go to there, uh, go to them. Uh, alcohol drinking, one of the white stockings had its share of those later on. Uh, uh, game scheduling was haphazard at best which made playing for the championships difficult. Uh, some teams would form and play a few home games that earned some money. Then they disband when they, when they had to go travel, you know, and that, that would cost money. So in March, 1871, uh, the white stockings, I think it was nine other professional teams. They, they gathered in New York city and, and, and they formed what's called the national association of professional baseball players and soon to be called the national association. So they, they discussed rules. They'd charge an entry fee. Uh, each team would play the best three out of five games. And, uh, and they, they, they had relatively few clubs and they had to play a lot of exhibition games, of course, uh, to, to, uh, against amateur clubs to make any money. But still, they were still gambling. They were still throwing up the ball games, the hippodrome. And, and this was a largely player-run organization that had no central leadership. And it was simply not up to the task. And, and so the game-fixing really kept people away. The alcoholism, the rowdiness on the part of the players as well as the fans. Also, uh, the Cincinnati Red Stockings I talked about, they were so good. And uh, Al Spalding mentions this in his autobiography that uh, – uh, they're winning discourage other clubs. You know, why should we get a team together? You know, the Red Stockings are going to win. Uh, and the small teams from the small cities lacked the financial backing of the large city teams. Uh, the mediocre teams didn't attract large crowds. So, of course, they took in uh, uh, little money. They were still the revolvers. And the, the, the example, the, the thing that really started, William Hulbert is kind of like, Mr. Mr. White Stocking back in that area too, in terms of his administration. In fact, uh, uh, he largely became was largely unrecognized. I think he finally got elected to the Hall of Fame in maybe the mid 1990s. But anyway, he started the whole 1995. Uh, but he's he's a seminal yeah. seminal figure in all of this. Uh, William Hulbert. Yeah, seminal. He's a seminal figure. Okay, that and he was a secretary of the of the Chicago uh, the Chicago club at that time. Uh, which is called the Chicago Baseball Baseball Club. But anyway, a man named Davy Force, I can't remember his position, but the famous example, though, he renewed his Chicago contract, but then he signed with Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Athletics. And so this, of course, ticked off William Hulbert. Uh, and the National Association had a Judiciary Committee, and he ruled in favor of Chicago. Well, no, you know, you're a revolver here. You signed with Chicago, you, you keep it. And, but the, then, the, then at, at a baseball conference, there was a newly elected committee, uh, and he sided with Philadelphia uh, and said, okay, no, 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 the, 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 they, they did not sign their contract. Chicago didn't sign the contract correctly. You can go to Philadelphia. And this really incensed William Hulbert. And he saw point blank then how the wealthy teams in the East, he had a big thing about the teams in the East, Philadelphia and New York, some other ones, with his powerful, his influential managers, they controlled the whole league. And that's, he started thinking about how he could change things. And so one of the first things he did in 1875, he lured pitcher Al Spalding from the Boston, the, the Boston team, 
was one of the best teams at that time. Al Spalding was there. And the big four, which was uh, second baseman Ross Barnes, catcher James Deacon White. By the way, he, he uh, mentioned Aurora, Illinois. That's where he finally he died in Aurora, Illinois. And he finally made it to the Hall of Fame just a couple of years ago. Uh, and infielder Cal McVeigh, uh, also infielder Adrian Anson from the Philadelphia Athletics. So he hired all them. And that's what really got his team going. And and, and later on, uh, he noticed that the, the Western teams financially supported the Eastern, the, the Eastern teams. Uh, I mean, the, Chicago being one of the Western teams at that time, the West was part, really part of the Midwest. Uh, the St. Louis Brown Stockings, the Louisville Grays, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, they called them the Western teams. And they, he realized that a lot of these teams when they played – uh, they got a, they 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 garnered so much more money in ticket sales, but when these Western teams went out east, fewer people would go to the games, and so they weren't making as as much money. And so he he and the Western teams uh, uh, met in late 1875, and then later on they invited the Eastern teams to meet in, in early 18 early February 1876, and they formed the National League. Now they had an entry fee of a hundred dollars. Uh, uh, no club could be admitted to the National League from a city of fewer than 75,000 people. No club from the same city as a member club or within five miles could join because he said they could see how money was being siphoned off from some of these teams that had two teams in the, in, in the same city. And that's what started the whole, uh, uh, the whole, the whole National League. And, oh, I mentioned, uh, uh, mentioned the gambling, um, on 1875, one a, a real famous example, the White Stockies were playing the Philadelphia Pearls in 1875, and both sides were charged with 21 errors, 11 in Philadelphia and 10 in, in, in Chicago. And then the Chicago Tribune, I found out uh, later, found out revealed uh, what happened. Um, they learned the Philadelphia Pearls had been paid by gamblers to throw the game and Chicago players were upset that they weren't included in the deal. So they started to lose the game. And so either both teams were trying to lose the game and none was succeeding. And that's why all these errors came up and people in Chicago were really, really upset. And all these editorials were written about you know, how the, how the baseball was being ruined and something had to be done. And, and force and stream uh, said something like uh uh, the National Association is an organization that can be run in the interest of either the honest or the knavish class of the professional players of the country. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We got into that a little bit with uh, our uh, previous guest, Bill Rysick, who uh, wrote about the National Association. And and yeah, it was just it's funny to sort of, uh, I guess, in the, through the lens of history, sort of recognize that, you know, this idea of professionalism was actually initially greeted with uh, derision and uh, and fear because of. Uh, it polluting, if you will, the sanctity of the sport. But, you know, arguably the National Association really was kind of the the gelling, if you will, you know, from that pure play at, uh, amateur kind of thing into what ultimately became the first professional league with the uh, National League. Funny you mentioned gelling because uh, one one sports fighter, when the, when the White Stockings were really getting going, and, and I was interested in that the, the sports writers – were really, uh, you know, even the Chicago ones who wanted the team to succeed. Boy, they had a no holes bar, you know. When Chicago was screwing up, or when they thought Chicago was screwing up, they would uh, they would let them have it, you know. And uh, and I thought that was really interesting too. Uh, 
when they were getting going and they weren't signing the players, I remember the Chicago Tribune said, and Chicago Tribune had a sports writer named Lewis Meacham, who was kind of William Hulbert's uh, mouthpiece. In fact, uh, they, 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 the Chicago Tribune published uh, what, what baseball needs to be done to succeed. So I think late in November, 1875. And, uh, and I think it was Lewis Meacham probably wrote that with, with, with Halbert. But uh, he said in the Tribune that, you know, three months after the, after the team was organized, the famous Chicago nine, which was to have supposed to have been beaten the Cincinnati red stockings in particular in the world in general consists of two players these bundlers allowed the days and the weeks to slip by doing things that they ought not to have done and leaving undone many things that they have done. And uh, talked about how it was all fizzled and everything. And they called them a baseball hacks. Yeah, so I was going to get, so you wanted to sort of throw this in there. So, because uh, it, it, we're, we're talking about sort of this period of time, the national associations is a period roughly between 1871, 1875, but it's, it's also interesting and interesting. I don't even call it an asterisk in this story, but 1871, right, is clearly a, a date that most Chicagoans uh, know just through rote memory uh, and having sort of learned about Chicago history. Um, and an auspicious uh, event happens near the end of the first season. Okay, they were playing pretty well uh, in 18 in 1870. You know, they 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 played real well. They beat they beat the almighty they beat the almighty White Stockings and everything else. And so they were and they didn't have that much money in their treasury, as I recall. They, but they had enough to get going. And, uh, uh, and, and, and their board of directors said, well, yeah, we're going to have another season here and everything. And so in, uh, uh, in September, and October, 1871, they were tied, as I recall, with the Philadelphia athletics, but the best record in the national association, I think it was like 18 victories and seven losses. And they were going to be playing the athletics on October 17th, 1871. Yeah. But unfortunately though, they never made it to the train station, uh, the Chicago Fire, of course, in October 8, 1871, incinerated about, I think, three and a third square miles of the heart of the city, including the White Stocking Stadium and its grounds and the homes and players, uh, homes and possessions, excuse me, of most of the players. I think Tom Foley, the business manager, lived uh, not outside that area. And I think it might have been Jimmy Wood. I can't remember. I think Jimmy Wood, they were the only ones not affected. And it was, and of course, it was too bad. One, of course, um, uh, the city, I have a quotation in the, in the book that says that, you know, three or four days ago, uh, the white stockings were on everybody's mind. Now on October 9th, you know, they're on nobody's mind. They've got other things to worry about here. Uh, you know, there's absolutely no public attention, uh, given to them whatsoever. You know, uh, I think I said something like it, uh, it may be said that they occupied very much inferior positions in the attention of the people. Uh, and so they didn't have anything going for them. They had no, they had little, little money. They had the clothes on their backs practically. And so they really wanted to you know, get a little bit of income here. And so again, good old Jimmy Wood, you know, he, uh, contacted the, the New York Clipper and, uh, the New York Clipper put out some, uh, some ads in this publication saying, you know, please support the baseball players, you know, get some exhibition games. They're out of the championship. Now they could know they, because they missed their game with Philadelphia and, uh, and they couldn't make that up at the time. Uh, they wanted to get some exhibition games going to, to earn a little bit of money. They didn't have any uniforms. So they were playing in borrowed uniforms. Somebody would have a uniform top from some team, a uniform bottom from another team, uh, uh, well, a real motley assortment of uniforms from other teams. And uh, 
So they, I think on October 12th, they played against the Troy, Troy Haymakers and, and, uh, and Troy, New York. Uh, they, lo- they won that game, lost another one. In fact, even, even though they were playing in New York, the, the spectators were largely sympathetic to the Chicago team because they could see, you know, these guys, these people were destitute. Fortunately, the, tra- the, train, the train companies gave them free railroad passes, so they were able to fly, uh, they were able to uh, uh, take the train uh, out there. But they still, of course, had to live and they had to get by. Uh, then they, they ran into rain, and so they had to cancel more games. So they finally managed to limp home. Uh, and uh, uh, Chicago Tribune commented that, uh, you know, this is going to be a season. The year 1872 will be a season of work and uh, no baseball, no baseball whatsoever. Uh, the Chicago Baseball Club surrendered its stock and had about $2,000 in the treasury but there would be no team in 1872. But they did manage to you know, play some exhibition games, limp home, and they started trying to regroup for the next year. And in fact, towards that end, the Chicago Baseball Club reorganized, and uh, they built a park in order to attract people to play games there, maybe take in some money, and then maybe start a, uh, a, another team at the same time. And that's what they did. Uh, they reorganized itself with the Chicago Baseball Association, and they got some uh, some land on the south side of Chicago on 23rd Street and Burnside Street, later Dearborn, and uh, and uh, near 22nd Street, which is now Cermak Road. And they built a park there. And in the years and the uh, the year and a half that followed, then uh, Holbert worked basically behind the scenes to uh, really help create this National League. So you know, in many respects, not only Holbert was sort of the, uh, the, the, the author, if you will, of this White Stockings franchise uh, through thick and thin, right? He was also the guy really behind putting the, uh, the, the, the crowning touch on the National League altogether. Yeah, he did. He did. There. And he was, pre- he was elected president of the National League uh, shortly after it was founded. And uh, he was president of the Chicago Baseball Association in the fall of 1875. So even before the National League, he was president of the Chicago Baseball Association. And he was made president of the National League in their first big meeting after they were formed. This was in December of 1876. They met, and he uh, and he was elected president. So he was president of both offices until his death on April 10th, 1882. Uh, and they uh, uh, they recognized him when he died with all sorts of honors. And uh, yet he was inducted in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1995. Uh, because he really was, as, he, as you said, Tim, a, a real seminal figure. If it weren't for William Hallberg, you know, he's probably next on my line of heroes after, uh, after Jimmy Wood. All right, a brief pause in the proceedings just for a second uh, to uh, pay a couple of bills. And uh, we appreciate your uh, giving our sponsors uh, some consideration, as always. And uh, one of our uh, earliest ones that continues to be with us and we love is our friends at Audible. And uh, Audible is, as you know, the king of audiobooks. And if you've never tried an audiobook for yourself, well, uh, here's a great opportunity to do so and to support the show at the same time. Uh, and that's when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, that's the place to go. And you're going to get a free audiobook download for yourself to try for free, gratis, on us. Uh, you can cancel uh, the Audible service at any time. Uh, and once you do download that book, and if you do decide to cancel it, it's yours to keep. So that's our little free gift. And uh, even if uh, you don't continue 
uh, with the Audible service going forward, you'll at least get a free audiobook uh, out of the deal. And uh, look, if you consider yourself uh, uh, somebody who's interested in sports and sports history and that kind of stuff, like we uh, try to pursue on this little podcast, you're going to find a, a whole bunch of titles in the vast array of, geez, what is it, 190,000 and counting titles to choose from. Uh, and uh, in particular, uh, if you like the if you like the hoops, you like the hoops, the basketball. Well, sure, we got a couple of those books, including, of course, probably the quintessential uh, tome, oral history, if you will, of the ABA, the American Basketball Association. That's called Loose Balls, and uh, Terry Pluto is the writer and I believe the narrator of that book as well. Uh, that you could use your credit for that, and it's a it's a wonderful romp that book, and uh, a, a great uh, oral history of uh, perhaps the most uh, colorful. Uh, basketball league of all time, the ABA, or if you're really interested, let's say in the National Basketball Association's history, uh, you could check out the audiobook from uh, our previous guest, uh, David Surdam, who uh, we uh, had a great chat about, about the uh, history of the NFL. But uh, this book is called The Rise of the National Basketball Association. And David wrote it. It's narrated by uh, Todd, uh, Todd Bars Ness. You say that three times fast. Uh, and a lot of the interesting stuff in this book uh, talks about the NBA in the context of uh, congressional hearings around antitrust and that kind of stuff around the 40s and 1950s. Fascinating stuff. And you could use your credit for that book, too, among, like I said, 190 plus thousand other titles to choose from at Audible. And again, it's audibletrial.com slash good seats. And uh, you're going to get, again, your free audiobook download courtesy of us. You can cancel at any time. It is yours to keep. And we appreciate you giving them a try. And uh, we certainly appreciate you uh, rejoining our conversation right now. So talk about that uh, those first couple of years then as the National League. The team is still uh, uh, actually known as the uh, Chicago White Stockings. And they're playing at the uh, 23rd, what's it called? 23rd Street Grounds. So interesting that Hulbert's sort of holding both of these jobs, which is interesting. And you wonder about the conflict there. But it seems to me that uh, he was uh, quite brilliant, Hulbert was, in uh, uh, attracting a few star players. You've mentioned, I think both of them, frankly, were two of the major ones, Albert Spaulding, who we should talk about, as well as a first baseman by the name of Adrian Anson, who ultimately winds yeah. up becoming known as being known as uh, as cap both of them uh hall of famers and uh, and for for different but uh, important reasons yeah we well, uh, cap anson you know he was he later fell on hard times like he he, he was run out of town or no what not really run out of town on a rail but people really got tired of you know the cap anson and, and for good reason he stayed on too long but he joined the White Stockings in 1876, and you know, William Hubbard brought him over in 1875, and he captained the team from 1879 to 1897. So think of all those years he was there. And he hit, you know, he batted for 300 every year except for a couple, uh, except for a few years in, in, in the end there. And uh, in fact, I think when he died, Sporting Life said, uh, as a consistent batsman, no one has ever equaled uh, uh, Cap Anson. Uh, and, but, but, you know, few people could generate the cheers and the jeers as well as, as much as Anson did. Uh, Sporting Life called him the greatest batsman ever produced, but uh, 
as a field captain. He had few equals and no superior. But his team, the, the team members, really, really disliked him. And, and uh, he, he brooked no interference. Uh, he would hold them accountable at all times. He'd just run them into the ground practicing. Uh, Johnny, Johnny Evers, John, the great Johnny Evers of Tinker to Evers to Chance, uh, 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 he said that in his autobiography, the training under him was, an, uh, was, a, was a nightmare. Uh, and everything. Um, so, uh, and then later, of course, um, uh, a lot of people uh, rec- recognize that uh, he, well, a lot of people think that he kept African-Americans uh, out, of, uh, out of baseball for a long time. And I, and I address this in, in my book. And uh, uh, in 1883, the White Stockings were supposed to play an exhibition game against a minor league team in Toledo, Ohio, the Toledo Blue Stockings. They were, I think they, I think they were in their first year of, uh, uh, in the Northwestern minor league and a, a really good top notch player was named by name of Moses Fleetwood Walker, otherwise known as Fleetwood Walker. And he had played baseball at Oberlin college at the university of Michigan. He was a law student in Ann Arbor and he was a catcher. Uh, he was African-American, as I said, and he had a sore hand. It was not, was not going to play anyway, but when Anson saw him, he told the team, Said he would not, he they would not play with 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 uh, Fleet Walker in the lineup, and uh, and so uh, um, he did, he didn't he he did not he no, excuse me he uh, he he put himself in the lineup excuse me uh, and then played right field uh, and the team the team to their credit put him in uh, put. Fleet Walker in the lineup, and he played right field. He couldn't play catcher because of his sore hand. And Chicago won, but it was close. And the score was was I think was seven to six. And the Toledo Daily Blade, and and I reprint this in my book. I reprinted some of the more significant primary sources called Anson, the the beefy bluffer they called him, and uh, they also called him Baby Anson because in fact he was called Baby Anson a lot during his career because he he pouted all the time. Another verb I, that was common in, in, in the sport col- sporting columns back then was kicking. You know, when you argue with the umpire, you're kicking. And they always called him, they always said he was kicking, uh, or they called him Baby Anson for complaining to the umpires a lot, too. But anyway, um, they talk about how what a, the Toledo Daily Blade talked about what a gentleman uh, Fleet Walker was and how the White Stockies were not gentlemen, their uniforms were dirty, and... Uh, uh, and they and they really they they really came out on favor of Fleet Walker, uh, and I have some baseball histories that say, you know, the cap they say that that Cap Anson is an outspoken proponent of a, a, a baseball color line. They single he single handedly kept African Americans out of professional baseball, and uh, and I wondered about that. And, I, and, I, and again, I come across some articles or some websites, and, and I can't remember the name of the book. I was talking to the the, the, the club's historian about this, uh, Ed Hartig, who helped me a great deal. And I think I quote from him uh, in my book about this. And we were both talking that while Anson was a superb player, he was a magnificent player, but he was a, he was a jerk. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he had a combative personality, he had a prickly disposition, and uh, he was arrogant. He was boastful. He was arrogant all through his career. And, and that endeared him to few people. So, Ed and I were talking about this, and we and we reasoned that if if baseball officials really were kind of thinking about breaking the color line, 
would they be willing to go along with someone whom they intensely dislike so much? And we both thought that, well, you know, if they, they if they wanted to break the color line, they probably would, if only to get back at Anson. And the fact that they didn't, that uh, uh, means that maybe perhaps Anson's views pretty much shared throughout, throughout uh, the game at that particular time. Yeah, that, you know, that's very interesting because, um, and frankly, uh, quite, you know, uh, uh, surprising and controversial, right? Because uh, I think you kind of encapsulated it. He's a guy that's uh, uh, obviously a, a good player, but certainly not without, uh, shall we say, a lack of confidence and maybe even in his convictions. Now I also have to wonder, and may, I wonder if, if you got into this a little bit. I mean, it's a guy who was uh, elected in the Hall of Fame in 1939, right? So not not a hugely long period of time since his passing. But for something that is so, uh, I don't know, morally and 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 politically and, and otherwise charged as this idea of segregation, right? When that, you know, I think it's a very interesting and uh, perhaps unseemly part of the now Cubs history that I think many people don't sort of realize and I, you just wonder how you know how he I don't want to say gets away with all of this but but how does he how do he, how do you juxtapose you know his 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 playing and and arguably his his uh, uh appeal for this team because hell the name of the team even changes I think because of him but yet all this sort of uh shall we say borderline ugliness uh associated with his personality as well how does I don't understand how all that sort of I mean, how do you change the name of a team, if you will, or the sports writers and stuff? Is it just simply force of personality despite its goodness or badness? Or, or how do you, I mean, it's curiosity to me. I think it was the, the force of his, of his personality because he was, for better or for worse, he really was larger than life. Uh, I'd, see, I'd see cartoons uh, uh, in the paper. And toward the, you know, he, he was forced to retire in 1897. And uh, prior to that time, though, uh, they call him Uncle Anns. They call him Baby Anson. They had all these names. They call him Grandpa. And uh, and and during one game, I know that uh, he uh, he decided if they're going to call him Grandpa, he would he would uh, he would he would play up to this. And so he he went up to bat wearing a set of false whiskers that went down to his knees. And he swore to the umpire that if that ball hit his beard, he would he would claim his base. But uh, I think the, the sports, the, the paper says something like, you know, nothing disturbed Uncle Anson's or Uncle Anson's beard except for the the whispering breezes off the lake or something like that. But uh, well, did nobody did nobody kind of want to challenge him? Is was that it? No, no, I never saw. I, at least in what I saw, uh, Ken, maybe maybe they did challenge it. But I, again, I go through these newspapers page by page for for quite a few years and i never really saw him challenge challenge they challenged his his playing ability i mean because he was really going downhill toward his later years and and they'd call him all sorts of names they'd say grandpa your 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 pants are falling now your pants are falling down but you're you got baggy pants and everything go home grandpa and things like that but they did not challenge him on that on that issue which makes me think that the views were largely held throughout 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 that era now, I can't, I can't, you know, I haven't done any real extensive research on that issue by itself, but I know in, 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 in what I've read, there weren't any. In fact, later on, there was another game uh, in which, oh, I gosh, in the 1890-something or other, they were going to play another team, and on that team, uh, they backed down. They did not play their their, their black players. Now I can't remember offhand the name of the team, uh, but... Uh, 
It was, a, it was a minor league team at that time up in New York State. I got to think, too, that, that Anson, uh, and frankly, he wasn't the only player on the team, right? But he was clearly a, let's put it this way, he was he was stirring the drink of a team uh, that was doing quite well. They were winning a lot of pennants, right, uh, in that time. And and I, I, guess, I guess my question would be, you know, circa 1889, 1890, how and why uh, does the name kind of officially or semi-officially or just colloquially uh, become the Colts? What, what's the, where's the Colts come from? Okay, they were called the White Stockings uh, for a while. And then in, in, in 89, and that's just a whole other topic, they, uh, 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 they had the Players League, which was a whole other uh, league at that time. And, and, uh, and that siphoned off a lot of the good players. And pe- players at that time were, were offered contracts that did not uh, include a reserve clause and, and, and everything. So a lot of players wanted to play for the Players League. And uh, so sports writers called the team the Colts because these were young players hired to replace the men who left for the Players League. And Tim, this is something, and something else I wanted to comment on. And that's something I did not know until I started the research. And that, you know, the sports writers were the ones who, who got the names. They were the ones who, who started, who, who coined the names. And, uh, uh, and I was going crazy before I finally realized this. I'd go to these secondary sources, and, and they would have these years broken down neatly for when they were called the White Stockings first, and then the Colts, and then other names came about. And, 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 the, and it all buried from year, from year to year. Some, some, some books said you know, Colts were in 1890, some in 1891. So, well, what is it? Then I realized that there really was no hard and fast rule. In fact, uh, sometimes... Ed Hartig and I were talking about this. The names were changed simply to to get another name in there in the sports articles, like the Cubs would be called the Small Bears and everything. And I saw Colts and 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 uh, white stockings, and uh, they wore black stockings for a while, so they were called black stockings. I see three or four different names in the same articles, but yeah. And and I use the names that they're on the RetroSheet database as kind of my authority file. But uh, the, the all sorts of these young players. Uh, were being hired to replace the, the old veterans leaping to the players' league, and so sports writers started calling them uh, the Colts. Now, uh, uh, Jim, we got him. Jim Hart succeeded uh, was uh, Al Spalding as as president of the team. He retired uh, in the mid oh, mid eighteen nineties, I think. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure, but anyway. Um, he sounded off former third baseman Tom Burns, who was manager of a minor league team, to be to become Anson's replacement. And uh, uh, on January 31st, 1898, when it expired, and so the the Colts had no managers, so sports writers told and called them the orphans. In fact, uh, I, I have an article from one person uh, who wrote into the Chicago Tribune saying that something to the effect that since the Colts have lost their papa. They should be called the orphans, and sports writers jumped on this, and so they were called the orphans for a while until, of course, then they became the Cubs later on in 1902. That's interesting too. So to, uh, there's a bit of colloquialism, and there's a, a bit of sort of almost slang and inside sort of. Uh, but yes, uh, the, the, this is not just unique to uh, to Chicago, right? And we also we had another conversation uh, uh, back in uh, late uh, 2017 uh, with Bob Ross on uh, on the Players League, which is its own. Sort of interesting uh, intrigue, but but yeah, it's also interesting too because there's there's some now real competition. Obviously, the Players League, and then you had uh, the uh, the American League in 1901, 
A lot of attention now to this uh, formally, uh, shall we say, frisky and or unruly uh, professionalism uh, in baseball now is uh, really becoming started to uh, really attract uh, people's uh, business interests. And the uh, Colts slash orphans uh, soon to be Cubs were uh, were no exception as they were uh, kind of maturing. In fact, my book is called Before They Were the Cubs and I wanted to find out, well, when did they exactly become uh, become the Cubs? And uh uh, you know they were called the orphans, and and the, and the team was you know when Tom Burns was not a very good manager, and then they hired they got somebody else who was not a very good manager either, and then, and of course the players themselves were not at all well disciplined, and they were really a hard bunch to manage, uh, uh, and so Jim Hart hired a man named uh, Frank Seeley who was spent 12 years managing the Boston Bean Eaters, which had taken home about five pennants I think, and so. Uh, the Chicago Sun Times just a few years ago had, a, I think it might have been in 2016 when the Cubs won the pennant. And I did not know this at all. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, a guy named Fred Hayner, he was a sports writer for the old Chicago Daily News, and he felt that the word orphans was way too long to put in a headline. And he wanted a name that would reflect Seeley's rebuilding plan and the whole manager's emphasis on youth. And so. In, an, in the opening sentence of an, of an unsigned article on the March 27, 1902 Chicago Daily News, he observed that, quote, you know, Frank City would devote his strongest efforts on the teamwork of the new Cubs this year. Uh, and uh, the Daily News editor at that time, James Gilbert, he, he wrote an article I came across years later that the name change was a result of a discussion with him and this guy, uh, uh, Hainer, Fred Hainer, and also the Daily News assistant sports editor, Charles Censusbaugh. And uh, they mentioned that Hainer objected to orphans, so the, they all came in together and they all started tossing names about. And, they, and according to Gilbreth, uh, Gilbreth, or Gilruth, uh, uh, one of them, I don't recall who, came up with the name Cubs, and Cubs it was, and Cubs it is even today. But, you know, as I said, the sports writers, uh, chosen chosen name, and it, it took a while for that name to get stuck to, to stick to. It wasn't until uh, the late, I think, 1906 when it really got adapted because they were still calling them the White Stockings, and they had all sorts of other names. They uh, they were called the Remnants for a while because some of the teams jumped to the some of the players jumped to the American League, so they called them the Remnants. They played out west for a while. They were called the Rough Riders, and. Uh, uh, they're called uh, Seeleyites for Frank Seeley in a while. So they were all sorts of names. So, uh, uh, but uh, finally the Cubs, I think uh, Ed Hartig told me that uh, Frank Chance, of, of Tinker Divers, the Chance, he really liked the name Cubs. And so I think it kind of solidified back in 1906. I think it was 1906. And then formally adopted a little later on than that too. So was Al Spalding, who obviously went on to, you know, the, the name is obviously uh, uh, not by chance because it's uh, the sporting goods uh, name is uh, very much affixed to to him. Uh, he left, he gave up ownership of the club uh, when he gave it up to John Hart in 1902. Was there any correlation, I guess, to this sort of uh, evolving name change or was that just sort of coincidence that that was happening? I think it was just coincidence. Yeah, I think it was just coincidence. Well, well you know, when when... When Colt, when the Colt came about, it wasn't purely by chance because uh, Anson had been pretty much forced out uh, by uh, Jim Hart, and uh, and Jim Hart had another uh, sports writer friend, and they and and fans wanted Hart out too. He had, had been worn out as welcome. In my book, I have a there's a cartoon of of Hart reaching for the of, of uh, Anson reaching for the pennant and trying to grab it, but uh, and so since he was out and. Uh, 
they were they were without their manager, and that's how the name you know Orphans came about too. So Spalding was pretty much in the background by that time. When he, he was still part of the team, he was a major stockholder, uh, but you no, know, he was pretty much behind the scenes at that time. At least I didn't find much much of uh, him in there. I know uh, I addressed this a little bit, and, and maybe might have been in a note that. Uh, uh, Anson himself thought Spalding had treated him rather poorly. Well, because Anson wanted to become uh, manager of the whole club, but uh, uh, Spalding overlooked him in favor of Jim Hart, who had who had helped Spalding with his big world tour. Of, uh, uh, but uh, it's Anson, in his book, says that uh, you know that Hart was a, a lousy manager, not much better, not much good as a human being himself, and they they had, they just liked each other all the time. Uh, 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 Anson felt that uh, uh, Hart undermined him. You know, he he uh, uh, Anson would find players, and uh, Hart would re we would resend the fines. So the two of them intensely disliked each other. And 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 Anson, in his autobiography, felt that Spalding really kind of you know sold sold him down the river, so to speak. Yeah, and, but, uh, but Spalding uh, was certainly uh, as you hinted at, but um, uh, you know, before on his way out, right? Uh, uh, arguably sort of made one of the more, most signature moves in not even Cubs yet history, although arguably that's around the time the Cubs name is starting to catch. Um, this, uh, why don't you just uh, briefly explain for those pe- not, people who are not diehard Cubs fan and don't even know these names. Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, and Frank Chance. These were guys that uh, not only Hall of Famers, but uh, constituted what became a fairly strong and dominant uh, team. That was largely Spalding's doing, no? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, uh, they, I think, boy, now I can't remember that. I think, I think Evers came first. Uh, he was hired, he was hired as an infielder. I think Frank Chance was catcher, but he, uh, but then later he moved to, uh, he moved to first base and then, uh, and Joe Tinker, uh, uh, was at, was at third base, um, or, or excuse me, shortstop. And, uh, and so that was largely, yeah, during during uh, during Spalding's watch in the late in the 1890s here, yeah, that was all Spalding's do, doing. And uh, I don't think they realized at the time um, just how just how good they just how good they would be, you know, and everything. But uh, uh, and they later became famous because of that poem that Franklin P. Adams wrote called "Tinker to Everest to Chance." He's a strongest of strangest of possible words, Tinker to Evers a chance. But they didn't really turn that many double plays from Joe Tinker, uh, shortstop to uh, Evers at second base and to Frank Chance at first base. But uh, that, that doggerel, that uh, uh, little poem, kind of, I think, really kind of brought them into the Hall of Fame, largely on their on that string. Because they were good players anyway. And they were really good players anyway. And, uh, uh, and, 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 uh, and that team, that team uh, back in uh, 1908, 1907, that was a, and I think their win-loss record in 1906, I think they won 116 games. That's, uh, that's, no one will ever beat that, you know, I don't think. Well, so let me ask you, let me ask you a research slash history question, right? Because obviously, again, you're a librarian by trade and, and, and research and, and obviously uh, meticulous footnotes. I, I saw the word meticulous a couple of times in the book reviews I've read, which is good. I think it's <laughs> that's, that's more than a compliment. Um, when we're talking about these names and you're talking about how loosely uh, applied they were, depending on maybe the newspaper or the sports writer that you were reading or, you know, perhaps the time of the season or the year or where they were on the schedule, whatever. seems like there's very liberal usage of different names and stuff. But um, I'm sure you have an opinion, I guess, and, and 
being a Sabre member as well, I'm sure there are whole committees uh, and consortia devoted to this this topic. Where did the lines of demarcation happen when the, shall we say, the history books are written and or, you know, an agreement is made that, you know, in 1902 or 19, sorry, 1903's season is when officially the Cubs were recognized as the Cubs, when you've alluded to that the, the first time it was actually used was actually maybe a year earlier. Where do these boundaries, you know, orphans, cults, white stockies, where, where did where did the based on your your knowledge of this particular topic around Chicago, the, the team in Chicago, where do these lines get drawn and how are they drawn? Or, or is it still, is it always full of conjecture and it just depends on which suppo- symposium you're going to uh, to determine, you know, what's what and, and people are constantly revisiting it? Well, I think that's exactly correct. I, I think it's always changing. It's always in flux. And it, and it depends upon what, uh, uh, what book you're reading. I think uh, on the Hall of Fame's uh, website, or maybe it's in a Hall of Fame book, they give completely different years for the for the team names that what than what I gave and I and I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out because they were called so many different names anyway, you know the Chicago's the Nationals the Seedlings the Sprouts the Microbes and everything and so uh, uh, and I mentioned I think in my introduction I tried to cover all things that people might want to might well, might criticize and I had to I had to pick one source and so I used Sheet a lot because of its because uh, even the even the even the box scores sometimes differed with each other. And I was just going crazy. So I decided to rely upon one source, RetroSheet, for the box scores information as well as for the team names. And there are some that disagree with me, I know, uh, maybe by a year or so. Well, no, the, the orphans didn't come about until maybe the year after that. I even do searches and databases for a particular year on the Colts for one year and then the orphans for that year and see which ones would come up the most. And I finally just decided to to to, to go with uh, with with Rector Street. I had to pick something, and I had to go with that. And the same with box scores. If the newspaper accounts would differ, I used Rector Sheet when it came to the box score information as well. But yeah, there are, I'm sure there are some people who would disagree with that. Uh, and there are some really good Cubs histories. And I, one of them I know comes to mind is the one called Cubs Journal by a guy named John Schneider. Uh, and it's marvelous for, for year-to-year summaries. And he was the one I know I, who clued me into the whole idea of the sports writers and changing the names. And I think uh, my choice of, of, of names by year might differ with his too. But, uh, but God knows I went through so many sources trying to, trying to figure this, out, this whole thing out. All right, so at what, at what point when you're doing all this, okay, what point, uh, where's the tipping point when you're in your, you're in your, your slippers and, and you're in the, you're, you're giving up your third uh, holiday uh, celebration with members of your family? At what point do you kind of say, maybe I've gone too far or, or why do I continue to do this? Like, do you and do any soul searching as to say, I mean, is it because you've gone too far and you can't go back or you want to correct history because you think it's important? I mean, what, what is it that drives you to probably past exhaustion to actually continue and meticulously do this? I, I really was driven past exhaustion, Tim. There was, there was a point 
where I kind of like lie awake at night fantasizing, what would it be like to have this done? And when I can kind of have a weekend to myself, because I go home from work, I say, got to work on the book. People at the, at the library say, what are you going to do this weekend? You're going to go anyplace, going to work on the book, going to work on the book. At that point, I was just driven to it. Cause I said, I'm a writer by avocation, but there were times when I thought to myself, I really bit off more than I could, than I could chew. I mean, going there are some people who say, well, all, everything's on the web. I do all my research on the web. Well, you know, it really isn't. And so going through microfilm, you know, year upon year upon year, all these deals of microfilm, that ain't fun, you know, and everything. And that's what really was a tipping point for me is how much of this can I go through? A thousand, thousand of copy, photocopies and, 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 and microfilm copies, I should say, in my, in my files. I felt driven to do it because I think this is a topic that hasn't, that's been done before, but I think I can do it and document it. You know, you mentioned my meticulous footnotes. Well, it's never been documented like this before. And I, and I really wanted to, to I hope, um, give something that will, you know, to use a cliche, stand the test of time. So I, I, I look through it, though. I think to myself, oh, I wish I, you know, a, a good pitcher was a guy named Jim McCormick. I think he won the, the uh, he's, he, in 1886, baby, he, he won more games than anybody else. Well, maybe I should have mentioned that, about, a little bit more about Jim McCormick. Or I should have mentioned the Stonewall infield a little bit more. Tom Burns and a couple other people were called the Stonewall infield because no balls get past some. I should have mentioned that. You know, so you can second guess yourself forever. But I know in terms of number of words, I was pretty much past my deadline uh, in terms of number of words. My editor was being very patient. And of course, then I had gotten sidetracked on some other articles. I'd written some journal articles, including one about the the, the ball player who shot Billy Jurgis in 1932. And I thought I'm, I want to expand that into a nice little book. And the year of, of course, Babe Ruth and the call shot. And I'm going to make a case that, you know, this Violet Popovich by shooting Billy Jurgis kind of a changed the course of baseball history and brought about Babe Ruth and, uh, and the whole call shot uh, incident. You know, so uh, I spent a lot of time researching that using some of the Violet's uh, uh, relatives and, and, and Billy Jurgis's relatives I talked to. And wrote a real nice article for Sabre uh, about that, which won a baseball award, by the way, too. So I really want to expand upon that. I guess I love this stuff so much. I love the research and the writing. I have to admit, I love the research better than the writing. Writing, you know, I can't remember who said it, something like, uh, writing is easy. You just stare at a piece of paper until blood forms on your forehead. Well, that's, and I wrote and I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And I was always changing things, and uh, that's just ungodly. You know, I got a, a picture on my computer of my of my whole study and what it looked like after I finished a real hard chapter. I I worked about I started about eight in the morning, and I at about eleven, twelve o'clock at night, pretty much nonstop. I had finished a chapter, and I was so proud of it and all that. Uh, good, good writing is hard. There's no doubt about it, especially when it's in. Form. But but uh, you, you've got to take pride in that, though, because arguably, you know, this is uh, about as comprehensive and as uh, authoritative a work on this period of, of of the team's history. Let me ask you this. Does does the have you had any recognition or any interest or any outreach by uh, the current Cubs organization or any ser- serious and or scholarly Cubs fans about uh, your work and it uh, filling in some pieces of things that may not have been known uh, before about this team's history. Well, that's a good question too, because uh, I really want to, you know, want to promote it as much as I can. And so I send copies to the Cubs organization. Uh, I send a 
excuse me, a copy to uh, Tom Ricketts. I sent one to, to Theo Epstein, a personal copy, autographed to each of them. I did not get any any any, uh, any replies, I'm afraid. Uh, I did get a nice, the Cubs historian really liked it a lot, and he's and he's done a great deal of, of, of promoting himself, and I think uh, some Chicago newspapers may write about it soon. Uh, I sent a copy to Tim Wiles at the Hall of Fame. Well, now he's no longer at the Hall of Fame, but he wrote a few nice comments for the uh, that are on Amazon, and so he's he was he was always so helpful. He's a research, he was the research director at the Hall of Fame, and he helped me a great deal. So. Uh, but uh, I've not received many. Uh, I've seen a lot of individual comments uh, from 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 players. Uh, uh, John Thorne at the at the national the baseball's uh, uh, major league baseball's official historian. He liked it a lot. You know, I, I sent him a copy. I met him at a baseball conference one time, and we we emailed here and there. And I he likes Jimmy Wood too, uh, uh, Mr. White Stocking. So I sent him a neat article on Jimmy Wood that I found simply by browsing through one of these little, little known, uh, Chicago newspapers. And, and we've talked about my research, but, but, but I really do think it does fill in some gaps. And I hope, uh, I hope people will realize that, uh, down the road. I hope it'll be picked up by some Chicago blogs too, baseball blogs. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're, if you call yourself a Chicago Cubs fan and, and look having, you know, I'm a transplant. I come from the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. I kind of grew up as a Yankees fan kind of converted to a Mets fan in the eighties when it was, I guess, cool to do that. And, and, you know, and whatever, but, but having married into a, a, a lifelong uh, family of Cub fans and, you know, it's been a very interesting journey for me personally, just to kind of see, you know, how, how people's passions for this team, uh, and it's a borderline illness, let's be honest. But it does go deep and, and very, uh, uh, you know, I think a, a, perhaps more than any other team, I dare say. Maybe the Yankees, but I would even argue that's even a little different. This team has such a, uh, 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 it's not just a loyal and passionate fan base. I'm sure that every team, in, well, maybe with the exception of Miami, sorry, Miami Marlins fans, you know, has a, a, would argue that they're, you know, rabid about their team. But the, the, the history of this team, it just reeks of it. And I, I think some of it, you know, obviously, it's because of the, the the dearth of championships until recently and, and all that kind of stuff. But I hope uh, that, you know, not only you uh, get on the radar of, you know, the quote unquote true Cub fans. And I know quite a few of them out there who, frankly, this is a blind spot for them. Uh, and I think it's also probably a very interesting part of understanding, you know, the primordial ooze, if you will, from which this uh, now very successful and very. Uh, lucrative franchise uh, came from. Are you going to be in Chicago at all to do some promotion for this book? And or what are the things you're going to do to help promote it? Well, that's a good question too. I, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to be working on this, uh, this new project, and uh, I've already, you know, emailed my my brother and sister about you know getting getting together in uh, maybe August because uh, I've got a, some eye surgery coming up, and I can't get, I can't go before then. And I thought if I, I would love to do some sort of promotion in August if I could. And I, I don't know really what to do, how I'm how I'm going to do it. I maybe contact some bookstores in that area and say, hey, can I set up a book signing here? Or promote it any way I can, uh, any way I can. But you know, I, I, I know promotion is largely, you know, and authors have to do a lot of their own promotion themselves. So uh, 
so I'd like to, I would like to do this as, as much as I can to, to get up some signs. I had some signings here, here in Fredericksburg and it went over real well. I sold a lot of copies. In fact, even, you know, students don't have much money, but a lot of students here at the university where I work, they were buying the book. I had about a dozen of them come up to my office and say, Hey, Mr. Bales, can you sign a copy of your book for me? You know, and I thought was, I was very gratified. And I was really gratified by a friend of mine bought it simply because I was her friend. And she kind of looked at it with this, not disdain, but they said, well, I'm not really a baseball person, but maybe I, Jack did this, I ought to read it. And she told me later she loved it. And she was quoting passages of it to her family at the dinner table. And it just made my day, you know, that I, this is what I wanted to do, have a real readable, a readable history of the Cubs in the area filled with interesting anecdotes. And I was just so touched. I saved a letter I, once in a while ago back and reread it because she went over in great detail about how, how much she liked it, liked the sports writers' comments, the way they talked back that, 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 at that time period, too. So that really, so yeah, I would love to promote it as much as I could, uh, and I hope it takes off a little bit, too. All righty, there it is. Always learning something new. I am each and every week, and Jack Bales, our wonderful guest, helping me fill in all the gaps uh, that I had previously until our chat about the uh, full and earliest of history uh, with the uh, Chicago Cubs that that, uh, we know and love today. Well, if you're a White Sox fan, you probably don't love them, but a lot of others do. And uh, and Jack certainly does uh, in particular. Uh, The book, again, that he wrote, it's called Before They Were the Cubs, The Early Years of Chicago's First Professional Baseball Team, is written by our... uh, esteemed guest Jack Bales, and it is published by our friends at McFarland. Uh, Of course, you can find a link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 117. Dear God, I can't believe we put these many episodes out there, but yeah, that's where you'll find it. Uh, And just uh, click the link, you'll find yourself whisked away to our friends at Amazon, and uh, you'll give us a few shekels of love by buying the book in that manner. And we appreciate that, of course. Uh, If you want to find out more about Jack and his uh, day job as a reference and humanities librarian at the University of Mary Washington, and you'll also find a link uh, on his website at jackbales.com, jackbales, B-A-L-E-S.com, jackbales.com. You'll find a link uh, uh, to his Chicago Cubs uh, research. He's got a blog there that kind of kind of walks through, I guess, some of the things that he was discovering as he was writing the book. Uh, and uh, he fancied himself as the Chicago Cubs-centric historian, of course. And uh, obviously that was evidence in our chat. But uh, you want to find out more about him, check him out at his website. And again, our website, if you haven't bookmarked it already, shame on you. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. You want to find all of our old episodes, you'll find them there. You want to find our social media feeds, well, by golly, you'll find those there too. Uh, on Facebook, you'll find a page devoted to us. You'll find a, a link to our uh, profile on Instagram. That's at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you want to follow us on Twitter? We'll go ahead and join the hundreds that uh, do that too. And we're at, at Good Seats Still uh, on Twitter. Let's see, on our website, you'll also find a link to our weekly newsletter. Uh, that's our sort of early advance warning signal to let you know what kind of stuff we're going to be talking about the next week. Uh, you want to be on the inside of that. And uh, perhaps uh, uh, before the hoi polai, well, by all means, uh, sign up for that uh, that their uh, newsletter on our website there. And um, what else? You can send us email. Uh, of course, you could do that, too. We appreciate that. Uh, there's a link on our website, a little form you can fill out. Or 
you just can't be bothered with that, just send it to us directly, why don't you? Hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Lots of fun stuff coming up soon on that website, so keep uh, checking that early and often. And uh, we also encourage you to check out our friends at Podfly Productions, who help us each week with our production and uh, editorial uh, needs. And of course, you know, the good Dr. Jerry Payne is our main man there. And you can find out more about him and them uh, at their website. And that's podfly.net. Okay, uh, we're done for this week. I uh, love the fact that uh, you've listened this long. Here's our obligatory opportunity to yet again play more of uh, Go Cubs Go. So <laughs> as we segue away, enjoy the uh, the late Steve Goodman once again. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, the ticket window is now closed. <laughs>